going to deal with that. Now, when we first started the series, we, we journeyed together. We allowed people to ask questions. 90% of the questions we got came from chapter 6. And of those questions, 90 or 100% of the questions were around this one question. Does this mean I can lose my salvation? Right, or to put it in a different way, I don't like to think about it as losing. I think the better way of phrasing it is, does this mean I can unchoose God? It's a better way to ask the question. So tonight, because of that, the main thrust, the main focus of this message is going to be trying to answer that as we unpack, um, as we unpack Hebrews together. But like Brad did last week, we're going to take a broad overview of the chapters because the warning passages in Hebrews are set within specific contexts, and you can't just rip it out without understanding why it's there. It's there because it's, there's something important that precedes it, and so we're going to do a broad overview of the chapter. We're not going to dig into it. You could preach five messages on these two chapters alone. We're going to focus in on answering that question, and so in a sense, we'll deal with the text in chapter 6, but we're going to look at the other warning passages as well, because that's the best way to try and understand and answer this question as best as possible. So, I realize that as I preach this, there are going to be three groups of people in the room. One group of people are going to be on this side of the fence and say, you absolutely can't unchoose God. Once you're saved, you're always saved. You're going to get people in the middle who are confused and don't know where they stand, and I've been there plenty of times before. And then you're going to get people on the other side of the camp that go, yes, I think you can unchoose God. Right? Theologically, you need to understand that these positions are like two titans that are put up against each other. Just because that is the case doesn't mean they're equally strong. I think one titan is stronger than the other. And I think one beats the other, right? And you'll find out which one it is. But I'm going to let you make your own decisions. And here's the thing. Regardless of where I land and regardless of where you land, we don't disfellowship over these things. You get what we call blood issues in theology, the doctrine of salvation, who Jesus is. That he is human, he was fully human, fully God. That he's the only way to the Father. That it's only through him that you're saved. That he was crucified, died, and was resurrected. But those are core doctrinal issues. We call them blood issues. Then you get these issues we're going to deal with today, pen issues. They're serious. They, they're good to talk about. And what you believe about them informs the way you minister. But you don't disfellowship over these things. Now then you get pencil issues, which is what Romans 14 was really all about. This is a pen issue. Right, and three things are going to happen tonight. One, you're going to become more resolute in the position you hold to. Two, you're going to become more confused than you ever were before. Or three, your position is going to shift from what it was to something new. I'm not trying to convince you of my view. I just want to unpack Scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you. Right, so that's what we're going to do tonight. At the end of the day, we have to walk away with this that Jesus is amazing, that he's our superior high king. We walk away together, unified, going, wow, the author of Hebrews thought it was incredibly serious to deny Jesus because he is so awesome, and I believe it. He's awesome. God, give me strength to live for you. That's what we walk away with tonight. Right. So let's read together. It's a chunk of scripture, but let's read. Chapter 414 onwards says, therefore, since we have a great high priest 
who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find, strength, find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he warns, this is why he has offered sacrifices for his own sin, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor upon himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take upon himself the glory of becoming high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, that was also another question we got, who the heck is Melchizedek? Right? John is going to unpack that in chapter 7, and he's going to do a wonderful job that I did not have time to do tonight, all right? So don't get stuck there. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have, we, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move on beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. It's a massive chunk of Scripture. But here's essentially what the author is trying to say. This is what these two chapters are all about. The high priesthood of Jesus. And how as a high priest, he is superior to any priest that has ever gone before and could ever come. Now, for us, we don't really relate to the idea of a high priest very well. Deacons, pastors, bishops, arch archbishops maybe. But when it comes to a high priest, we don't really relate to that because it's not really part of our paradigm or our thinking. But remember, the author of Hebrews was writing to Hebrews who had converted to Christianity, who were in the church, who were being persecuted and being tempted to turn away from Jesus, to go back to their faith system of Judaism, perhaps somewhere else. But he's writing to say, listen, you understand the significance of having a high priest. We appreciated it when we were in Judaism. 
Don't go back there. Jesus is so much better as a high priest. And what a lot of people don't understand is that still today we need a high priest. We need a high priest. You don't have to be Jewish or ever have been Jewish. The reason why God set up the structure he did for the people of Israel was to show the world what was necessary, the spilling of blood, someone to intercede for you, to mediate for you. And that's exactly what the Levitical priesthood did. There was a high priest who would go once a year into the Holy of Holies and he would cleanse himself first. He would spill blood and sacrifice gifts and offerings to the Lord on behalf of the people. He would mediate. He would intercede. He would, he would minister to people and, and, and be able to come alongside them and affirm them in their love for the Lord and their faith because he himself was weak and understood what it was like to be human. But the problem was this. The problem was the blood of oxes and the blood of sheep and the blood of whatever it is that they spilt wasn't enough. And the high priest himself, being human, was sinful. His blood couldn't have been spilt to pay for the sins of the world. And people came and go. The high priest changed. He was never someone sufficient. And so there was a problem. But then Jesus came. And that's what the author is getting at. And until you understand the Old Testament and how it speaks about our sinfulness and the sovereignty of God, and you realize how sinful we really are, and you put those two together, until you realize that, you won't really appreciate how much we need a priest, a high priest to do what the priests back in the day would do for the people of Israel. So the author is going, guys, don't forget this. Jesus is so much greater. He's our high priest. He became our sacrifice. He himself became our sacrifice. He became our high priest. He is therefore now our mediator and the one who intercedes on our behalf. He's the one who's able to empathize and sympathize with us because he has endured everything we've endured. And guess what? His high priesthood will never end because he was perfect, sinless, and was able to overcome what we are tempted with every day. And so he has been elevated to the highest position possible. And because of him, the temple veil has been torn, and we can enter because of his high priesthood into the Holy of Holies. So the author is saying, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is amazing. Don't look back. Don't look back. Jesus is better than the priests you had. Don't go back to this old system. And the same is true for us today. That's the thrust of this. But then, just before the warning passage that we're all afraid of, he starts the actual warning section with a rebuke. After establishing the superiority of Christ's high priesthood, he moves into a rebuke section. And the rebuke is really leveled and aimed at their lack of maturity. And you go, well, how can someone be rebuked for lack of maturity? Because maturity in and of it, immaturity in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. You know, I don't get cross with my children for being immature. I recognize that they're immature. When I teach David and Abby to cross the road, I don't get cross with them when they were two years old, when they come to the road and they don't look left and right. I don't get cross. I recognize the danger for them. I recognize the immaturity. And I go, my son, Abs, Listen, you've got to look left, you've got to look right, you've got to look left again, and then we cross the road. Because if you don't do that, you'll die. <clears throat> right? It's a different story if you see an adult just running into the road after a ball. 
You're like, don't be stupid. You should know this. You're 18 years old. Right? We, we have a different approach when we expect someone's maturity level to stop them from doing something. And so the author writes to the Hebrew audience, and he's concerned about their lack of maturity. Why? Because he says this about the mature. He says, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. You see, as you grow in the Lord and you mature, you're able to distinguish between good and evil a whole lot better. And you remain away from the stuff that is evil and you press on towards the stuff that's good. But their lack of maturity was preventing them from seeing just how bad it was going to be to reject Jesus. That's why he's concerned with their maturity. He goes, you, you should be teachers now. But this is what he says to them. He says, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need, though, to be taught again the elementary truths of God. They knew stuff. And their laziness and apathy in the Lord has landed them in a place where they're immature, but they should be mature, and they're approaching a point that is incredibly dangerous. And so he's concerned. He's concerned that they don't see the danger of rejecting Jesus. And why does he say it's dangerous to reject Jesus? Because it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance to their lost, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Now, does this mean I can unchoose God? Right, to answer that, like I said, we're going to look at all of the warning passages in Hebrews and take some stuff out of it. Right? And at the end we'll come to a conclusion and we'll wrap up with some of the phrases and terms used in our actual text this evening. Right now, when, when, when you look at the, the warning passages in Hebrews, there are four common things that they all have and we're going to unpack those four common things. Here's, here's the first one. Every single warning passage has an audience, someone the author is writing to. It also has a sin that the author is describing the audience, or des describing to the audience and telling them to stay away from. It also has an encouragement or an exhortation or an appeal, a way to avoid the sin. Hey, you, there's a sin. Do this to avoid it. And then the fourth one is this, there are consequences. Hey, you, there's a sin. Do this to avoid it, otherwise this. So there's an audience, there's a sin, there's an exhortation, there's a consequence. We're going to unpack them from number four up. Right? The reason why is because four and three are the ones people most agree on. Two and one, there's most disagreements about those. So we're going to build our case going upwards from number four. Right. So what are the consequences? When we look at the, the warning passages in Hebrews, right? they're potent. There's a lot of them, but here's some of them. And here's what I want you to do as we do this. Do what the Bereans did with Paul when he was preaching. Go home in your Bible and read these and ask yourself some honest questions. I'll give you some questions to ask. Right? But here's what, here's what some of the warning passages say. The consequences are to whatever the sin is that he's encouraging them not to do. They will not enter my rest. It is impossible to renew them unto repentance. No sacrifice for sin remains. 
but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Died without mercy, destruction. Right? There's a common theme to the consequences as you journey through the book of Hebrews and the warning passages. And where I land, as I read that, is that I understand, if I was going to put that into a phrase or an idea, where I land with what the consequences are, the consequences for whoever commits this sin that he's speaking about is disastrous. It's not good. And it's consuming. It's all-consuming, and it's eternal. And it means that they're going to be outside of the company of God. I really believe the consequences that Hebrews says for the sin that these people shouldn't be committing is eternal judgment and damnation. Not just because of chapter 10, verse 27, judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God, but died without mercy, destruction, that they will not enter my rest. I've got to land in the place where the consequences are all-consuming eternal judgment and destruction. Like we're speaking about going to hell here. Then what is the encouragement to the people who are reading this? How does he encourage them? We're going to turn our attention to the exhortations. He says this, in order not to do this thing that you shouldn't do, which lands you in hell, pay attention. Pay attention. Hold on. Be careful. Don't fall short. Let us make every effort, i.e., try very hard to not do this thing. Hold fast. Leave the elementary teachings. Move on to maturity. Don't cast away your confidence. You need to persevere. That's how he encourages them. He says, this is what you must do to avoid the sin which ends you in hell. If we choose just one term, I think, to summarize this exhortation theme, if we could put them all together, I really think you could say he's telling them to persevere. It's perseverance. He's saying be faithful. It's faithfulness. He's saying that you need, that you should apply, and that will keep you from the sin. Theologian by the name of Scott McKnight said this, the author calls us to a long obedience. This Perseverance is both mental and personal. One both knows that God is faithful and Jesus is God, Son and Savior. And one actively surrenders to God's grace and empowerment for the entire length of one's life. Perseverance then is both about one's theology and one's practice. It is both belief and believing, trusting and obeying. See, it's I have faith and so I act this thing out. I have faith and so I persevere. It's believing what I believe and then doing something about it. He's calling them to persevere in their faith. Now, one really interesting conclusion that I draw from this, and you might not land there, but I land there. If it's true that the encouragement is to persevere in the faith, if the encouragement is to be faithful and hold on, it goes without saying that one doesn't need to encourage a non-believer to hold on. One doesn't have to encourage a non-believer to persevere in the faith and to remain faithful. They're already faithless. They're already not faithful. They're not holding on to anything. 
I believe that the exhortation to persevere in the faith is exclusively a Christian faith one. I mean, isn't perseverance an indicator of genuine faith? I have faith, therefore I persevere. Because I believe, I do. I have faith, therefore I live out my life for God. Perseverance is not a specialized form of faith. It's true saving faith, the type that James speaks about. Some theologians ripped James out of the book because they didn't like the idea of having to work in the kingdom or the idea that faith, genuine faith, might produce or was supposed to be working itself out. It's the type of relationship that Paul speaks about and James 2 speaks about where you have this faith. It is obedience to God. There's, a, there's an outwork and there's a perseverance. It's a relationship that continues, right? To persevere means that we continue to believe and that we live like believers, which means obediently. It doesn't mean, though, that this is a sinless living. It doesn't mean that we're on some steady, ever-inclining road to pure, to pure perfection. We're going to have our ups and downs. We're going to mess up. We're going to stumble. Spirituality is messy. The Christian life is hard. We're going to have our doubts. We're going to have our fears. We're going to have all the troubles in life that come with everyday life for everybody. What perseverance really just means actually at the end of the day is that the person continues to walk with Jesus and doesn't turn away from him in a resolute manner. That's what perseverance means. So let's just recap. We've learned that there's a sin that leads to death, eternal judgment. We've learned that the way the author is encouraging them not to enter that sin is by telling them to persevere and to hold on. Now we get to the two that people disagree on the most. What is the sin? Right? The list of words, well, the list of words that the author uses is quite long. And again, regardless of whether you agree with me, we all have to read these scriptures with an open mind and an open heart to the Lord. We need to allow scripture to reform us. We have to allow it. And we have to read with an open mind. So take down these scriptures, go home and ask some questions, right? Ask questions like this. What is the sin that people commit? What kind of person commits these sins? Is it a Christian? Is it a non-Christian? Can a non-Christian commit these sins? Here's the list. Slip away. Disobedience. Disregard one's salvation. Harden your hearts. Turn away from the living God. Disobey. Fall away. Re-crucify Christ. Make a public display of Him. Deliberate sin. Treat with contempt to the Spirit of grace. Shrink back. Forgotten the word of encouragement. That's the sin the author says you need to avoid. What's interesting is he doesn't use one term for it again. But he has where I land. When I read that, I think some of the terms used are metaphorical, some are literal, but he's using it to describe a willful rejection of God. He's using it to describe a denunciation of one's faith. He's using it to describe a rejection or disregard for God's moral standards. He's saying that's the sin. In one word, the sin is apostasy. An apostasy defined is the abandonment or renunciation of one's religious views. 
In other words, the sin these people are being encouraged not to do is to deny Jesus. It was a sin of abandoning the Christian faith and active trust in the king that they had come to know, the Messiah that they had come to know. Think with me quickly about chapter 10, verse 29. It says, these people insult or mock Jesus. In other words, this is not something that you wonder if you're doing. This is not something that just sneaks up on you in the middle of the night and takes something from you. But this is a willful, conscious, active, deliberate decision to deny Jesus and to reject him and to move away from him. For me, if that's what it means, and if that's true about these passages, if that's true about what the author is saying, then it's going to mean maybe a change of heart in the way we see some of the stuff written in Hebrews and what we've always thought true about our faith. Right? The audience is the one point where most people disagree. This is like the one contentious issue. Who's he actually writing to? Everything about the warning passages hangs on who the audience is. Right? Who are they? Were they believers or weren't they? That's the question. If the audience is composed of believers and believers can forfeit their salvation by their own choosing and disobedience, then this is what it means. It means that God in his sovereignty made the decision to give people an ability to choose and then to deny him, to both accept him and then later to reject him. And guess what? Because he's sovereign, he can do that. God can do that. Give us that free will. Now again, as we look at the audience, as we examine some of the terms, go home, ask yourself the question, who does the author think he's writing to? Who does he believe he's writing to? The consequences again will be massive for some of us. But there are plenty of terms to consider, but we're only going to consider some of them for time's sake. But the first one is this. The author uses the term or the word we often when writing. But he includes himself in the audience. He says, we must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Now, what's the significance of that? Why is that so important? Well, it's really disingenuous to include yourself in a group if you really don't believe you're part of that group. And we would assume the author believes that he's a genuine Christian and loves Jesus. It would be the same as me saying and writing to the Springbok team, but I really actually support New Zealand and love them. And I write to the South African team and I go, listen guys, we must really do well today. We must tackle well and play well. It's disingenuous in a couple of ways. Why? Because I'm not actually a true Springbok supporter. And two, I'm actually not part of the team. It's a different story if Brad and I write to the Springboks and go, hey boys, we better play well. Why? Because we're South Africans. We're part of the team. We're part of Mzanzi. 
Hey, we're South Africans. And it would be even more appropriate if Sia, Colisia, to write to the boys and go, hey, boys, we need to play well today because he's in there. The author uses we and us because he believes he's part of the community he's writing to. He believes he's writing to Christians because he's a Christian and he includes himself in there. By using we, the author assumes and believes that he's a genuine Christian and implicates himself in the potential for apostasy. That's the second reason why it's disingenuous. He can't write this to these people if he doesn't have any moral authority to do this. He can't be living the life that he's calling them to or not living the life that he's calling them to. And the third reason why it's disingenuous is because um, if he doesn't believe it's possible for him to fall into this thing himself. He writes and he goes, he includes himself in this. He says, hey, it's possible for me to do this as well. I'm not just writing to you about something that only you can do. Next, the author calls his audience brothers and sisters. Like the very serious nature of this is only realized when you understand the culture that the author is in. For the first century Christian, for the first century theologian or teacher, or preacher, or pastor, to call someone brother and sister is to be connected to them in the deepest way, on the deepest level. And the sense in which he uses this word is given to us um, a little bit later, a little bit earlier on, um, in, uh, in the scriptures where it says this, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Not only does he call them brothers and sisters, but Brad highlighted this last week, he calls them holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. He calls them brothers and sisters. The author is convinced that he is writing to people that he is in spiritual fellowship with because they share the common knowledge of Jesus and love for Jesus and are together brothers and sisters in the Lord, part of a family. We, us, holy brothers, holy sisters, you who share with me in the faith, I write to you. Also, he calls his audience believers so he says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Have, past tense. Believed, past tense. We have, belie we have believed this. Also, and this is the trump card for me when it comes to who he's writing to. And you've got to do something with this in Hebrews. You have to do something with this verse. You can't just ignore it and skirt around it when trying to identify who the author thought he was writing to. It says this, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the, spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, by which they were sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace? by which they were sanctified. Sounds a lot like a Christian to me. Right? Here the you have spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood, by which this group was already sanctified. The author knows he's writing to people who've already committed the sin and who could possibly commit the sin and are being tempted to commit the sin. Lastly, concerning the audience in 6.10, they are those who have shown love in the name of Christ. 
In chapter 10, 22, they've had their hearts sprinkled and cleansed of a guilty conscience. In 10, 32 to 34, there's evidence that they've endured persecutions up until this point. These, along with other examples through the book of Hebrews, confirm for me at least that the author is convinced he's writing to Christians. And here's how we're going to end the message tonight. By just using that scary verse that everyone's scared of in chapter 6 to confirm some of this stuff. Because I think everybody thinks the, only this scripture is speaking about the fact that you can unchoose God. I think they're all warning passages lead to that point. Right, here's what it says. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. Enlightened was a word that the early Christian church used for a conversion of the mind. Romans 12, be transformed therefore by the renewing of your mind. Right? In the same way, it's used in chapter 10, 32, where he's encouraging them and he says, remember those early days after you received the light. He's speaking about this being enlightened. You've received it. If you've been transformed by renewing of your mind, this is what it's speaking about. And that comes through having the Holy Spirit in you and being a Christian. Tasted. Those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Tasted is used to describe, or better worded, experienced. Not just for those who have tasted but not actually eaten. And that's confirmed again in chapter 2 of Hebrews where it says that Jesus tasted death. Jesus didn't just nibble on death. He experienced it for us. But he died. These people haven't just had a little dabble in the heavenly gifts. They've experienced them. Partaken or shared in the Holy Spirit refers to that charismatic transforming of the Spirit in a Christian's life. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. You don't just get like a tenth of the Holy Spirit. The sense in which they, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They've shared in that. I'm convinced the Hebrews author was convinced himself that his audience was mixed. But not mixed in the sense that there was false Christians and true Christians. Mixed in the sense that there were true Christians only and some were going to fall away and some were not. There's no suggestion in the book of Hebrews that he thinks that there's fraudulent, fake Christians in the group and that there's real ones. There's no evidence of that. I believe it's very clear that the author knew his audience. He knew that some would fall away. He knew that some had fallen away and some might fall away. And so the implication is this. Yes, when we unpack God's word in Hebrews, a Christian can unchoose God and some of us who know people who've done that are really deeply saddened but it also comes with a sharper breath of reality from God's spirits to us who warns us as well to persevere to not treat with contempt this gift that we've been given you know some people have tried to make Hebrews because they can't deal with this it doesn't fit into their theology so what they try and do is they try and minimize and downplay the warning in Hebrews to say the author is just speaking about losing out on gifts, on eternal reward. For me, that horribly downplays the significance of Jesus being our great reward. You see, if I know that someone is losing a relationship with somebody and had they been in relationship with the person, they would have been blessed with gifts, I don't write to them and go, hey, you're losing out 
on some money or some gifts or some Christmas presents. You better get back with that person. I go, what is wrong with you? You're losing relationship. You're losing relationship. Go back to the person. The person is the blessing. I think the author to Hebrews, his writing is saying, Jesus is your great high priest. Don't lose him. I think sometimes we overplay and overemphasize storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. God's word says we must do it. But guys, Jesus is our treasure. He's our only and everything that we need. One day when you get to heaven, you're going to stand there and you're not going to be worried about your gifts because you're going to be in awe of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's the same as Apostle John, right? He was the disciple who had the closest relationship with Jesus on earth. He even fell asleep on Jesus' shoulder or chest. Here's a guy who's walked so tightly with Jesus, he's heard the heartbeat of the Son of God in his ear as he took a nap under a tree. And then on the island of Patmos, when he sees Jesus for who he really is, he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. He didn't go, I wonder where all my gifts are, right, that I've stored up. Let me, let me bring them to Jesus. Oh, I'm really worried about losing my gift. No, I'm worried about losing Jesus. He's my gift. He's my greatest reward. And so the author to the Hebrews is going, guys, don't lose Jesus. Don't lose Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean, and I promise you I'm going to end with this, this doesn't mean that salvation is dependent on us. And I just want to clarify that. It doesn't mean that we have to earn what God has got for us. No, salvation comes from God and God alone because God is gracious, merciful, and kind. We don't deserve what God has done for us, nor should we try and earn what God has done for us. We could never have earned it, and we will never be able to earn it. God saves because he is good, gracious, loving, and faithful. That's why he saves. Only he could have done it. But God has made us in his image, and part of being in the image of God is being able to choose and to express free will. And so God in his sovereignty has given us this important element, which is God's freedom to choose whether we will walk with him or whether we'll walk away. And we use this whole topic of choice and free will to defend against the faith. When people who don't believe in God say, I don't believe in God because there's so much evil, what the Christian does is go, well, because there's evil, there must be good. Right? You know something's evil because you're comparing it with something that's good. And the reason why those things exist, the possibility for evil and the possibility for good, is to determine what genuine love is. God says the greatest command is to love him with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. How do you know what genuine love is? When you've chosen to love when you could have not chosen. It's the reason God put the possibility for evil into the Garden of Eden in the first place. Because God doesn't want robots. He wants people who will follow after him. He said, Adam and Eve, here is this place. I want you to love me. Don't do that. And they evidenced their love for God and their obedience to God and their desire to follow him when they didn't do that. And so God gives us this choice. Love him or not. Love him or not. And that's why it's impossible to be brought back to repentance for these people. Not because it's impossible for God and God is unwilling. That's where people get fearful here and they get confused. This impossible is not 
God, it's impossible for God to do it. It's impossible for you because of your hardened heart. You're the one who won't come back to God. If you're in a place where you've experienced God, He's redeemed your life, you've been filled with the Spirit, you've had a renewed mind, you've walked with Him, and in exercising your choices, you've chosen to walk further and further away from God, and you've got to a point where you've deliberately said, no, thank you, I'm stepping out of this. No, all of that, but I'm walking away. Your heart has become so hard, there's nothing left for you, for God to do. He's given the everything He can give, His Son, Jesus. There's a parallel scripture that says there's no more sacrifices left for those who don't accept Jesus. The impossibility doesn't lie with God. The willingness for God to have you come back, it's there. But your heart has been so hardened. And you don't have to worry about whether this is you or not if you're going, Lord, I just want to follow hard after you. Is this me? I'm concerned. The fact that you're concerned means it's not you. And we don't have to walk fearfully or terrified one day we might wake up and we've sinned and all of a sudden our salvation's gone. God's not hiding at the door waiting to snatch it from you. This is a willful, conscious, deliberate decision to reject him. And at that point, your heart is so hardened that you won't come back. It's impossible for you to not come back. So where does that leave us? That leaves us going, God, thank you for what you've done. God, let me not treat with contempt the salvation that you paid such a heavy price for me to get. God, let me love you with all my heart. Let me be obedient to you. Lord, this discipleship thing, this obedience to you thing is a very serious thing. When you said those who love me will obey me, I realized you weren't joking. God, when you said don't harden your heart towards me, you, was, you were being serious. When it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, those who claim to be in Christ must walk as Christ did, it's not just a suggestion. It's a command and it's a true fact. God, let me not treat with contempt this salvation that you have bought me for. Right? We need to sit in reverence and awe and wonder again of who God is and the price that he's paid. Right? And evaluate our hearts before the Lord and go, Jesus, I am all in and I'm not looking back. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and bless you for your word. Jesus, thank you that you are our great high priest and that the author to the Hebrews just gives such a strong warning to us, not because he wants us to be fearful, but because he wants us to see the greatness and glory of Jesus. May we be brothers and sisters, sons and daughters in the Lord, who look forward, who press on like Paul said, to take hold and to grab hold of the gift which you have taken hold of us for. Lord, may we run this race with perseverance. May we be diligent and obedient to you, knowing, God, that you're able to keep us, that you give us everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, may we love you. May we honor you. Would you restore to us the joy and the significance of our salvation? Would you restore to us an awe and a wonder and a reverence for the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And may we never in this church, Lord, treat with contempt the blood that has bought us and the price that has been paid. May we love you, Jesus. Empower us, Holy Spirit, to honor our King. Keep us, God. 
Keep us, God, under your wing. Call us to you, Lord Jesus. And as we worship you now, God, I pray that there'd be an overflow of worship, that there'd be an overflow of reverence, that we'd worship you in spirit and in truth, knowing that we join with all of creation as we sing praises to your name. Bless you, Lord. I just wanted to read, um, there's a scripture in the Old Testament.